Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena and today our guest has been involved in venture spanning a variety of industries, including telecoms, fintech, logistics, energy, and now the medicinal cannabis business. But he is best known for founding Channel IT and Bass, now Optasia, a telecoms provider which he founded in Nigeria in 2003. The company now operates in 19 countries and plays a major role in infrastructure in Africa and the Middle East. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Basim Hader to the podcast. Welcome, Basim. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Great. So yeah, you have a really interesting story. You're a Lebanese national, but you were born in Nigeria and you were, you founded your first business um, when you were just 20 years old. So can you tell me a bit about your path and your journey to being in the position that you're in now, someone who's founded multiple businesses in you know a variety of sectors? Well, the journey was... Um kind of unplanned in a way and turned out to be a success. But the driver was always the need that I found when I went back to Nigeria. Um, Basically, after going to Lebanon to study and coming back to Nigeria, I still found that communication was really, really bad still. And no one was actually doing anything about uh, creating or finding a solution. And therefore, give you simple examples, factories in Lagos, which is the commercial state of Nigeria, the hub, had a population of about 7 million people at the time with 300,000 telephone lines. And people could not communicate. Uh, The factories were 50, 60 kilometers outside Lagos, so there was no communication with them. So I managed to find a solution to connect these factories to the main commercial hub. And coming with very little capital, I'm talking about $3,000 when I went to Nigeria, and starting with the first little equipment to make it work and prove that it worked. And from there on, obviously, it was a success. And I had all the factories coming to me and queuing up, basically, to, to have the solution that I brought to the country. And this went on for about three years uh, with huge success. It was a startup myself from my from my home to having over a hundred people, you know, within three years working for us. And then I knew this would kind of end. That party would not last forever. So I was thinking of my next venture. And those days, back in two thousand and three, two thousand and four. There was no satellite TV on the equator or in West Africa generally because the satellites were not beaming over that region. And therefore, it was a challenge to try and find a way to receive a signal and allow people to see content that was very much available in in the West, in, in, in Europe. And therefore, after a lot of trial, working with some engineers and so on, Uh, we were able to produce a massive eight-meter satellite dish that captured a signal. It took us about six months to get the signal. And it was seen by a few people at a trade fair. Orders were booked. And from there, it was a huge success for us. We had a huge order backlog. And then we got a kind of, I remember, a very massive order from a big Japanese company to do 250 units for their camp. They were producing steel. So... 
all of this just kind of helped me raise, you know, my own capital in a way without having to go and borrow from anyone. And then the GSM was starting really to pick up in Nigeria at the time. But there was a little problem that no one saw is that to build a um, GSM site, you needed to have more than 10 or 15 vendors all working together, different equipment, different manufacturers working for the telco operators to be on site to actually put a telecom site so that people can communicate. And you can imagine the lack of coordination between 15 different suppliers to get a site. So I saw that gap and I decided to be a single integrator where I would be sort of a super vendor. I would buy the equipment from these 15 vendors and I'll go to the telcos and say, one-stop solution, I'll deliver the site to you, complete, kitted on the site, and you can just basically erect it and then start your communication. And this was a huge boost. I mean, some telecom operators went from building like 20 sites a month to 180 sites a month. So uh, they were able to reach rural areas. They were able to reach and provide internet connectivity to places that had never been on the internet before. So this was a this was a huge achievement, and we continue to do this up till today, actually highly, highly successfully. And coming back from the satellite TV business, I tried to do satellite TV on phones. That didn't go well. That failed. I was ahead of time on this one, I must admit. The phones were not ready to deal with the massive flow of data required, and that didn't work out after I invested well, dearly in that business. So it was a lesson for me. It was a wake-up call to say, you can be successful in many things, but there will be the one thing that will wake you up. And this one was a wake-up call. So I had to be a bit more careful how I approach new ideas. And then in 2012, basically, I had this idea of providing credit to people that are not credit worthy. Considering markets in Africa, Middle East, Latin America, Asia, where there is no credit scores, there is no data on consumers, how do you create the data? And the only way to do that was via their phone usage. And people underestimate the amount of data available on your phone. Anything you do, you leave a digital signature, be it from uh, top-ups to browsing, to where you visit, uh, what you buy, etc. And this data is super valuable. This creates a credit score which allows us to lend money to you by pre-approving you as a borrowing customer. We introduced and built this platform and through the mobile networks, and we got the banks to back us up, providing the financing. We were able to grow this business, and currently we lend over $3 billion annually uh, through this platform and working actually right now in much more than 19 countries. Uh, we have about 560 million customers globally, out of which 90 million communicate with us and borrow and interact with our platforms on a monthly basis. So this is a hugely successful business. We're planning to do an IPO for it sometime early next year. So this is kind of on the telco side. I know you mentioned the medicinal cannabis. This is a business that came from the background where I was thinking medicinal cannabis is going to be something big in the future. but no one is actually understanding how the logistics are going to work for this. How do we move product from country A to country B? So I tried to dig into this and look into it, and I realized it was super difficult 
different regulations, different standards, and so on. So I decided instead to build a medicinal cannabis facility. And we chose South Africa simply because of the climate, cost of land, the availability of farmers, being African-rooted myself, even though I'm Lebanese originally. I thought Africa uh, was the place I needed to do this, and I chose South Africa. And we built this facility, and uh, we commissioned it about five months ago, and basically sold all our production for this year and next year. And now we're breaking down and building uh, facility two, which is going to be four times bigger than the uh, current one. So that's, that's where we are. That's a really good description of, of your, your journey so far. And one thing that I sort of picked up on is, is that you did mention that you tried to start a TV satellite business, but that was um, a failure or you weren't as successful in that as you might have imagined. A lot of our listeners are business leaders who have potentially failed throughout their, their journey to starting their business. But how did you deal with that specific failure that you experienced? I think the biggest lesson for me was you could assume you could think of everything to make a business successful. But the one thing which is right in front of your eyes and which is the easiest one is the one that's going to make you fail that you ignored or you did not see. And in this case, it was content. When you don't have the right content or the content providers are charging you a lot of money, it kills your business case. And this is something I underestimated completely. And I underestimated the strength of data requirements on mobile phones at the time to be able to have a good quality experience. And therefore, these two things were very difficult to solve because we were ahead of time. Smartphone penetration wasn't as big and smartphones were not as powerful as they are today. I'm sure you've heard that, you know, today there's more technology in an iPhone than Apollo 11 when they launched it. So <laughs> they'll just tell you how much is transformed. And when you're still dealing, you know, with the old Nokia handsets and trying to stream onto someone's phone, the experience wasn't good. We tried with the right type of phones, but we underestimated the ability of consumers in these markets to acquire the high-end phones. So that was a lesson that we learned quite hard. It cost us some good money, but I took it as a lesson to say, well, you know what? You failed in this. It's fine because if you win in everything, maybe the bigger failure will be devastating, but this one wasn't. So what you need to do next time is just to think of any potential parameters that could make you fail. And uh, yeah, I still use that mantra up till today. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a really good advice to be resilient and kind of take every every failure as as a sort of lesson to to learn for for the next time you're sort of planning a business venture. You also mentioned with your your venture in medicinal cannabis that within that you you sort of needed to understand what I guess a gap in the market in the future or what a certain need from consumers was. Um, do you think that this is the most important thing for a business owner or entrepreneur to think about when starting a business? Is it is it identifying that need in the future from consumers? I think the biggest mistake people do 
is follow a trend. And that's the single biggest mistake anyone does. Never, ever, ever follow a trend. I've never followed a trend. But what I saw and what I understood is that do not underestimate the power of the consumer and the curiosity of the consumer. So when you have a consumer that really wants medicinal cannabis or recreational cannabis, but there's not enough supply, there's not enough top quality product out there, and we really researched the market, we hired the best people to do this for us, and we realized that demand and need from consumers is what's going to drive growth because that's the single most powerful thing. Once you solve the equation around people wanting your product, where do you get this product from will be the next challenge. And that's what we did. So when we realized that, hey, clients in Germany, the UK, Australia, so many other countries are really struggling to find product. And what is the future of supply chain here? I thought, well, I need to build the best facility in the world and I need to build the best quality product. We even develop our own intellectual property, our own strains. And what is interesting is that in medicinal cannabis, there's actually hardly any CBD in it. And the trick is, how do you get to well over 20% THC, which is what really then starts to make an effect on patients. And our product today is treating insomnia, arthritis, you know, Parkinson's, so many other diseases with no side effects. And this was the key for me, is how do we break these barriers around regulations? How do we make sure we create a top, 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 top level product that will be in demand? We won't have to sell it. People will come to us and ask us for it. And this is what was achieved here today. Of course, we had to invest in standards, which are just like basically any medical facility around the world. So be it equivalent to uh, Hoffman Roche facility where they produce certain drugs. This is the standard you have to do. It's highly, highly, highly regulated. There are general manufacturing practices by the EU that you have to comply with. Very, very difficult to get the licenses because of the complications and the compliance required. But we bypassed these barriers. And yeah, it's amazing that when we started this three years ago, we didn't expect to sell all our production as soon as we launched the business. And that's what's actually happened. So would you say that need or like identifying the needs of customers in the future is, is a really important thing for, for businesses? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at every successful business in the world today, the ideas were there, but it's the need and the curiosity of the consumer that made that business successful. Be it the iPhone, be it Amazon, any other company I can mention to you today was successful simply because the need was there and they touched the right buttons and that's what drove demand. And once you have this mix of formula and you're able to identify that need, then it makes the business a lot easier. You can sell generate revenue and you can fix things as you move along but can you imagine investing and you don't have the market to sell your products in what is there to fix you can't create a market if it doesn't exist yeah that's uh that's really interesting thanks basim so optasia offers banking to developing markets and and now you have you know 650 million users across the world why is extending financial inclusion to unbanked developing countries across the world 
Why is that important to you um, on a personal level? So it's two things. One is many people have tried to speak and try to crack what we call financial inclusion. Nothing was done about it. No one was able to crack the formula. How do we get a lady in Bangladesh to borrow $50 because she needs to buy textiles to sew, sell, make some money, and pay back? Banks were not interested to do that because the cost of acquisition is incredibly high. To give a loan of $50, the cost of acquisition is about $150. Two, the banks have no idea how to score these customers. Three, the bank is about 100 kilometers away. How much is it going to cost this person to go to a bank and come back to be able to borrow $50 or $80, $100, which is the segment we work in? So we decided to crack that. So it was a challenge uh, for us. And the second reason is, if I look at my background and where I started, I didn't come from a privileged family. I started from basically nowhere. I had to crack the way and the road in front of me to get to where I am today. And opportunities were presented to me, maybe at the right time and the right place, call it luck, call it whatever you want. But how about we create an opportunity for people to be able to do something with their lives? And this was one of the drivers. And the impact we've had on millions of people by providing these loans has just been incredible, absolutely incredible. And when we decided to go to some of these countries, because I travel to these countries myself, and I speak to the people and ask them, do you know about this product? I say, yeah, absolutely. I say, why do you do it? Well, it changes my life because it gives me that extra liquidity today to start my business, you know, to start my trade. And then when I make money during the day or the day after, I pay back my loan. I said, but will you default? I said, no, absolutely not, because we want to make sure we pay back so we can have that backup of money whenever we need it, because nowhere else will we be able to get that money. And that was so exciting to hear this. And this is why we started to expand more and more into many countries. And this has had a really, really positive impact. In the West, we think $100, uh, what's $100? But we don't realize that when you have 1.7 billion people that are living on $50 or $60 a month, and you're able to provide them $50 or $60 loan, that's a huge impact for them. It really, really does change their lives. That's really powerful. And another thing Octasia does is accelerate affordable smartphone ownership. How do you think this positively impacts people? Why is that so important? So let's put it in perspective. We have so many products we want to try and sell to consumers that we believe are good customers, but they are unable to get onto these products because of lack of smartphones. If you want to classify smartphones in the past, the smartphone used to cost $600. Today, you can buy a smartphone for $40 or $50. So we said, how about not only we look at doing financial inclusion in terms of providing loans and so on, but what if we, we provide the tool for these customers to be able to get onto the financial system? And what is a tool? It's the mobile phone. So if we're able to create a technology that allows us to give a mobile phone and allow customers to pay gradually for it, why not? And as a result, we develop a technology that allows us to lock the phone remotely if payments are missed. So the customer knows in the back of their mind, we're gonna give you a phone, you've got payments to make over six months or 12 months for this phone, $5 a month or whatever it is. 
But if you miss payments, then your phone is going to be locked. It's going to be actually tended useless. And people go for it because they want to improve the quality of their lives. They want to check prices of commodities if they're a farmer. They can have 4G connectivity instead of 2G, etc. So people are embracing that. And as a result, we're creating more data on these customers. And when we create more data on these customers, we're able to lend them money that they haven't been able to lend just say six months or one year before. So that's why we started to do this. And that's why it started to impact their lives positively. Do you think that there's a difference between the way the Western world and developing countries welcome technology into their lives or their society? I think in the West, we take technology for granted. And I think in developing world, it is a daily need. It's a daily human right. It's a daily requirement in order to survive. So it's not taken for granted. The mobile phone in the West is your life, but in terms of social media and unnecessary stuff, if you think about it. How many people do banking today through their mobile phones? That's increasing, of course, in the developed world. But you can also do your banking over you know, your laptop. You can go walk to a branch. There's so many ways you can do it in emerging markets. It's not that easy. Without a phone, without a secure connection, without good connectivity, without a bank that is willing to bank you because of the small income that you generate, your phone is your livelihood. And your phone is your collateral in a way. So when we give you a handset as a loan, it's our collateral because we know you're going to protect it because it's your way to be able to live a better life, a better experience, maybe share videos with your kids that don't have these phones, etc. So it's a very different view. And I'm actually grateful that I was able to see this firsthand in emerging markets Because I understand if I was born in the West and I grew up there, I probably have no idea about the needs in these emerging markets, the consumers in these emerging markets will need. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious to, to know what impact you think growing up in Nigeria and having the experiences that you had, how do you think that's kind of made you the person that you are, but also impacted the way that you look at the world? I think if I put it in an example, I think uh, growing up in Nigeria is equivalent to Harvard in a different way. <laughs> you learn firsthand in a very, very tough environment how to do business, really, really firsthand. You've got to look at all the parameters to make sure something becomes very successful. Because when you have infrastructure and regulations supporting you, you can use your education and your skills to build on that regulation to try and build a business. When you're in a country where regulations are weak, where the environment does not support you, where the laws are weak, where there's a high level of corruption, you need to be very careful and you need to think very differently. Your mindset is not the same mindset that you'd have in the Western world. And I think this was something that gets embedded in you from childhood to be super careful, alert, but yet not underestimate the opportunity being presented to you. I mean, I'm lucky and grateful to be able to have seen this because growing up there and realizing how far behind we were to the West, and I thought, but why? 
And I think it's just a matter of timing. We're just behind in time. We are 30 years or 20 years behind, but in 20 years or 30 years, we're going to be what the West is today. So why not start building on that? And this is the thinking that drove me because I knew this is where we're going to get to. And then outside Nigeria, it wasn't only about Nigeria. I mean, we started to go to, you know, to Ghana, Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire, South Africa, Kenya, all these countries, then North Africa, Middle East, Asia. It was the same common thing all along, different cultures, but the problems were actually exactly the same. But the big difference is people did embrace technology a lot, lot, lot more in these markets. And I think that was a good driver for us. Do you think that entrepreneurship is something that you are born with uh, and entrepreneurs are kind of born with that ambition and drive? Or do you think it's something that can be learned? The real, real successful entrepreneurs are the ones that are born entrepreneurs. You cannot teach this, really. What I've seen, you cannot teach this to anyone else. You know, I've got three daughters, and I'll tell you one thing. I can see the one that is going to be an entrepreneur, and I can see the one that's going to be a lawyer, and I can see the one that is sort of a little bit of each but doesn't really know where she stands. And I'm an entrepreneur myself. So can I make them entrepreneurs? No, I cannot. Can I force them to be in one of my businesses and run this and run that? No, absolutely not. It's either you have it or you don't have it. And I've seen many, many families hand over businesses to their sons because they believe they're entrepreneurs. And by default, their sons and daughters are going to be entrepreneurs. And I can tell you 80% of the time that doesn't go well. (laughs) That family wealth disappears on the second generation because of uh, lack of entrepreneurship. Succession planning is critical when it comes to well-developed businesses. It doesn't have to be family members. It doesn't have to be that at all. It has to be people that can continue the mission of the business. Now, of course, you have more resources in the West, but you also have far less opportunities than you have in emerging markets. So what will you use those resources for? Well, if the opportunity is not there, I'm not sure how much you can use that. When you think about it deeply is that Look at the level of education in Europe and so on. Why hasn't there been any highly, highly successful tech companies or highly, highly successful global companies coming out of Europe in the last 10 years? I can name very little. I can name a company like Klarna in Sweden and so on. But realistically, when you look in the US, it's because the US is geared for entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs are becoming a trend there. The environment supports them, creates that opportunities for them and so on. And someone has to think, yes, the opportunities are in the US, are the opportunities in Europe. We are pushed down by all these regulations, by all these laws that actually suppress the entrepreneurial spirit in Europe. This hasn't happened yet in emerging markets. There's a lot of opportunity, a lot of entrepreneurs. But what drives an entrepreneur? This is what we we never speak about. It's hunger. It's a fear of failure. In the West, people are comfortable, you know. You fail, that's fine. There's a government to look after you. You fail, okay, yeah, you live with your family. You'll fail. You're not going to starve. In the emerging markets, you don't have that backup. You fail, you're going to starve. There's no support system that just tells you, well, if you fail in this, try this and try that. It doesn't happen like this. So that in itself creates entrepreneurs. And this is why you see Today, for example, technology companies coming out of Nigeria and Kenya, 
extremely, extremely successful companies built by entrepreneurs that just had the right education, came back to their countries and started businesses in an environment that enabled them to put resources, to put knowledge, market knowledge into practice and become very successful companies. One thing I picked up on is that sort of fear of failure, because often entrepreneurs are told again and again to, to not be so afraid of, of failing because it's a natural part of the process. But would you say that a fear of failure is a universal defining characteristic of entrepreneurs? We should not mix both things because I believe that fear of failure is the single biggest driver for an entrepreneur. When you're afraid to fail, you are going to put not your best, your absolute best to be successful. If you are thinking, well, if I fail, I'll try again, you've already set yourself for failure in a way because you've allowed that 10, 20, 30% chance for failure to happen. People ask me, but you always have a plan B. I said, no, I only work on plan A because the moment I think about my plan B, I've already discredited my plan A. So why can't I perfect my plan A in the first place so that I don't need the plan B. This is very important. And I think this is something we, we really need to embrace very strongly. Forget about plan B. Only focus on plan A. The fear of failure is going to drive you to deliver plan A because you've not created another choice for you in case plan A fails. And for me, I know, people ask me, oh, you must have been very confident. Then I was absolutely not confident. I was terrified to fail. And this is what drove me more than anything else. I was not prepared to fail. Something that's come up quite a bit in the podcast and also is a bit of a sort of buzzword at the moment in the West is this idea of imposter syndrome. And I'm just wondering if that's something that is maybe existing in the West, you know, as a part of this sort of privilege, or if this is something that is also spoken about in the developing world at all. You know, the, the, the interesting thing is um, I haven't heard anything in the emerging markets, and we spend a lot of time there, people talking about, you know, mental health, stress, imposter syndrome, uh, depression. People don't have time for this. It's, it's, we don't have time for this. People want to live. People want to move on. People want to build things. Maybe it exists, but they don't think about it because how is that going to help them? And where will they go for help? The only thing they can do is help themselves, is to build their lives, is to move on, think about their kids' education. That's what people are thinking. I think in the West, we're spending too much time today thinking about issues that we create, and then it becomes a trend, and then we start to believe in these trends so much, we stop moving forward, and then where do we end? we end up with people self-diagnosing themselves because it's easy for them to say, you know what, I can't continue on this journey. It's too difficult for me. Okay, I'm just gonna, maybe I've been diagnosed with A, B, C, D, and E. My mental health is not in a state where I can do this and that. This is becoming a serious problem in the West. But I can tell you, don't say it doesn't exist, but I'm saying from my experience, I've not heard any of this come up in any of the emerging markets. I can tell you, we operate in different businesses in more than 40 of these markets. And it's not something we come across because I think people have bigger problems that they need to deal with. People need to think about their food daily. People need to think about, you know, how do I get on with my kids' health and kids' education and so on. They don't have time to self-diagnose. And I think in the West, 
we live, you know, we live with to great standards and so on. But as humans, we should start believing more in ourselves. We should start thinking, what can we do more with our lives? Life is not easy. It's going to throw a lot of bad things on you all the time. It doesn't mean you're just going to give up because it throws bad things on you because you had a good life and all of a sudden something goes bad. You should learn from that and try and move forward. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I think it's good to have that perspective to realize the differences between people's priorities as business people and and people in general across the globe. And I think the types of issues that impact people's mental health it, it like across the world are just very different. Uh, the types of challenges that people face day to day, like for example, social media in Western countries is a leading cause of mental health issues, which maybe people wouldn't have really imagined and isn't so much the case in developing countries. Whereas, you know, not being able to buy basic necessities is something that would lead to, to poor mental health in, in those countries potentially. Absolutely. Um, especially with the, with the generation I'm talking about, you know, eight, nine-year-olds to their teens and up to even their 20s and so on. Everyone wants to now become an influencer or a star. I mean, this 20 years ago, this doesn't exist. 15 years ago, it didn't exist. Who thought about being an influencer and trying to make money off YouTube or whatever, whatever? Yeah, okay, there are some successful ones and some good ones, etc. But it seems everybody now wants to become this. Everybody. How much more influencers can there be? How much more junk from social media are people going to be you know, absorbing? And, and how can you apply that in the real life? What kind of lessons are we learning from this that we can apply in the real life? None, basically. Really, zero. And this is creating, yeah, mental health issues. I've got three daughters and I'm very, very concerned all the time because they do spend a significant amount of time on social media. But then the question is, I'm telling them, what are you learning out of this besides wasting hours every day just watching this star do this and do that and this person jumping off this with a challenge? How is that going to help you in the real day-to-day life? You think you can apply any of these things in your day-to-day tomorrow? No, you won't be able to apply this. And therefore, they're getting influenced and spending a lot of their valuable lives instead of learning something, being influenced by silly things and then feeling incapable of doing them and therefore having all these issues with mental health. And I think that's less relevant in the emerging markets because people have less times on their hand. People have to walk to school. They don't have connectivity walking to school and they can't afford a smartphone where they can be on social media, whereby kids are being driven to school today or on a bus or on a train, they have full connectivity and they spend that half an hour even before they get to school already watching social media and already being influenced by it. And I'm not saying in the emerging markets it's not going to happen. I think it will happen in the future, in 20 years from now. Definitely it will happen. And then maybe the issues of mental health will start also. But right now it's very different. And I don't know what can be done about this. I don't think we can regulate all of these social media companies. What is true, what is wrong, what is allowed to be seen, what is not allowed. It's a very difficult subject. It is definitely a very difficult subject with a lot of different aspects to it, but that's that's really interesting to hear your perspective on it. A lot of entrepreneurs would consider kind of your story to be aspirational, but also, you know, they would think that you have sort of made it. But I'm just wondering if if you feel that way and how do you maintain your motivation to kind of keep going, even though, you know, by certain standards, you would have been considered to, you know, reach the success. 
You know, I don't, I don't feel I've achieved anything is the truth. I feel that I've achieved something, but there's still a long way for me to go. And don't get me wrong, and I'm not going to be philosophical about this. And I hear a lot of people say, oh, it's not about the money and all of that. Right now, for me, honestly, it's still about the money, but it's not everything about the money like it used to be. But it's more about creating things that are impactful, things that maybe someone hasn't done before. And that's what excites me. I'm super excited about my medicinal cannabis business. Super, super excited. And that's because I'm learning all the time and because I believe this is going to be huge in the next five years. I have zero doubt about this. And I can already see the trend. We just participated at the Europa Cannabis Conference in London. And we could see the biggest distributors in the world coming to us, trying to sign deals with us for future supply chains because there's not enough top quality medicinal cannabis today in the world. And if we could lead in that sector and become the number one player in the world, why not? And that's what drives me. The money will come. That becomes a natural thing, obviously, after. So, of course, money is a huge driver in an early stage of an entrepreneur, but it's not the driver for me right now. It's still very important, but it's not the driver for me. And do you have moments where you you feel less confidence or you feel like you lose a sense of purpose in any way? And, and if you do, how do you deal with those moments? Totally. I mean, we all, we all lose a sense of purpose. Sometimes we question ourselves, but I think that's just human nature. You need to question yourself all the time, whether you're doing the right thing, whether you really need to start this now, is it time to take a break and so on? And then you get the shivers and say, no, 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 no way. I'm not going to stop now. No, no, no. Now I'm going to even move a bit more. So your mind plays on you because it goes from fear of failure to fear of losing what you have. And that's a different level of fear altogether. It sounds a bit strange, but that's just the way it works. You've built many successful businesses are you going to do a mistake that's going to cost you? So you become a bit more careful, but I do not want to lose the entrepreneurial part. I do not want to lose the creativity part. I do not want to lose the ability to start new businesses, invest in new businesses, acquire new businesses if it needs be. I think because it just keeps me going. You know, It's just something that I enjoy doing. And I think the most important thing for me was the challenge of removing myself from the operational day-to-day aspects of my businesses and trusting people to run my businesses. And I think this is, I would say, one of the biggest challenges that I had. And I started to work on this about 13 or 14 years ago. And thankfully, I've got some of the most amazing people working for me, which allows me time to, you know, to think about other things, to think about personal things that I want to do, some philanthropic things I want to do, etc yet still managing to you know, grow the businesses and think of new ideas. And I think that's kind of a next stage in an entrepreneur's life is to be able to achieve that. And when it comes to stress and dealing with stress, like are there certain things that you do to wind down? Are you so busy that you don't really get to have too much space to yourself? Or, or what do you do to tackle that? Definitely, I've created free time for me, but I, I started to think differently about stress. 
Stress is also a driver for success. People should not underestimate the power of stress in many ways. I learned that stress could be a good, powerful driver, but also I also learned one very important thing is, and I'm thinking I stressed about it yesterday and I'm here today, and then what should I do now? Should I stress about tomorrow? And then when tomorrow comes, I said, why did I stress about it? So you need to manage stress in a different ways. Of course, I've, I've had more times you know, to do certain hobbies that I've always wanted to do, but I think it's not to manage stress. It is just because I believe I need to live life too a little bit and I want to enjoy you know, my life after working for you know, 29 years. I think it's normal um, that, that, that I do these things. That's really interesting kind of hearing about managing stress in a more kind of incremental way and yeah, putting it into perspective, I suppose. Now, you, you've also founded your own venture capital firm, Nuru Capital, um, and a lot of our listeners will be very interested in hearing about how they can you know, best prepare themselves and get themselves to, to a point where they're achieving investment that they want. Uh, what advice would you give to business owners about achieving investment? So there's really two things here why I started NeuroCapital. One, I wanted to help entrepreneurs raise money for businesses where it was too big for the very big venture capitals to look at. These guys, they want to put a check of 20, 30, 40, 50 million. It wasn't interesting for them. But also it wasn't really seed capital, angel investors with few hundred thousand. So it wasn't the segment I was looking at. What we realized is that there is a segment where funding is required between the three and five million dollar mark. And this area here was completely ignored by many international investors. But these are extremely good businesses. These are amazing, amazing entrepreneurs, but they just lacked the backing. So that's one of the reasons we decided to target that segment. But the other thing that we said, we would not invest in a business whereby the entrepreneur is looking to start this business and is already thinking about an exit. That's a no-go for us. When you start a business, you got to focus on the business. You have to not think about the exit. This is becoming a huge problem now that we see is that everyone starting a business after one year is already thinking about the exit. When I started my businesses, I was thinking about an exit 10, 12 years later when the business was super well established and so on. But that's only because it shows you've invested your time, blood, sweat, effort into this business to make it what it is. Then, of course, it's nice to cash out at the time. So we try and train these entrepreneurs when we invest and say, do not think about an exit. For now, focus on the potential of the business. We see the potential in this business. We like it. We're going to invest. We're going to back you up. We're going to support you, not only financially, but we're going to open up many areas for you simply because of what we've learned over the years, because of our relationships and so on. We only invest in businesses that we fully understand. No matter how exciting something else sounds, if we don't understand it, we're not going to put any money into it because we can't add value to that. And this is what really we're using today as a tool to grow these businesses, invest in them. Some businesses we've invested twice, three times so far in different funding grounds, simply because they are following the advice. We're helping them open up markets where they did not expect to open up these markets, simply because we are in so many countries ourselves. It didn't come from other people's money. 
it didn't come from us sitting in one location and looking you know, everywhere, where can we invest? No, it came with a very clear focus to say, we understand emerging markets. We are only going to invest in emerging markets. And we're only going to invest in companies where we believe we can push, create value. And as I am the only sponsor of this venture capital, we're very careful how we put our money into these companies. We've not raised any money from anywhere else. We've put in our own money 100%. But then we are, from October, going to raise a second fund. And that fund is going to have institutional investors and external investors. And that will be focusing on different sectors we believe are still also being ignored, but with slightly bigger ticket sizes. Yeah, it's interesting sort of hearing about investment from the perspective of an investor. And and that's really interesting advice and, and an interesting perspective. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our podcast, but... With every episode, we always finish with a segment called Answer the Internet. This is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs answers to. And the question we'll put to you today is from Jolly Chomper 111 And they ask, how do you become a billionaire with $5 million? Well, if you can become a multimillionaire and a billionaire from three or $4,000, $5 million is a lot of money. I mean, you should, it's a lot of money to start a business. I think what you need to do is remain hungry. What you need to do is to make sure you start something where there is a need for it. Don't follow the trend. There must be the need. It must be something unique, something where you are in the lead few years ahead before anyone else can catch up with you. You have to have the intellectual property of whatever you want to do. Leave your passion aside. Your passion isn't going to help you. Your passion is going to bring you down. Be hungry. Be afraid to fail. And I think you will make it. That's a really great answer to that. And then we are Business Leader Magazine. So my next question is, what makes a great business leader in your perspective? I don't think there's, there's one uh, a thing that makes a great business leader. I think it's many things combined. One of the things that I felt was very important is people trusting me. You need to create trust. People need to believe in you. Everyone is looking to a leader. And when people believe in you, believe in your mission, believe in your vision, you are a fair person. You're willing to take the people on the journey along with you. You're not shy to get your hands dirty and work at the little level or the high level of the company and be part of the teams you're working with. Do not sit up in the castle and let the people work down. You need to be down at the same level with them. Apply that vision and make it a mission, but always let your people challenge you. The day you stop letting your people challenge you is the day you're going to lose them. And I think it's critical, critical, critical that you listen. You're the leader. You made the final call but at least you must give the opportunity to the people with you to present their ideas, challenge you in a strong way before you make that final call. And I think this is a combination of things that everyone needs to carry along with them always as a leader. I think our listeners will find that really interesting um, and useful advice. Thanks for that, Basim. And then finally, do you have any, any final words for the audience? 
Well, all I can do is hope that some of the things I said today will inspire people to think differently. There's nothing wrong with changing the way you think. I think you can always think better. Usually what I notice is people get motivated for a little bit of while and they lose their motivation. But I think listening to something over and over, eventually it'll embed and eventually you'll believe and eventually it'll become part of your daily routine. And I think this is important is to listen to different podcasts, listen to different views and try and make your own judgment on this.